The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Sportbox with Karen Cho, Jeff Cutmore and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. The UK is changing its guidance on the AstraZeneca jab, suggesting the use of alternative vaccines for young Brits, but adding the benefits still outweigh the risks. If you sail a massive liner across the Atlantic, then it's not really reasonable that you um, aren't going to have to make at least one course correction during that voyage. Well, the EU drug regulator says there may be a link between the AstraZeneca vaccine and very rare blood clots, but stops short of recommending any age restrictions. The benefits of the AstraZeneca vaccine in preventing COVID-19 overall outweigh the risks of side effects. The S&P 500 ekes out another record close as the Fed minutes indicate the central bank will stay the course. Governor Leon Brainard tells CNBC they're focused on hard data over forecasts. The outlook uh, has brightened considerably. Of course, our monetary policy forward guidance is premised on outcomes, uh, not the outlook. President Biden opens the door to compromise on his corporate tax plan, saying he's willing to listen to negotiations, as reports suggest 25% could be the best middle ground. Debate is welcome. Compromise is inevitable. Changes are certain. Morning, everybody. And as the IMF and the World Bank spring meetings continue, we've got a host of central bankers on the program this morning. We're going to speak with uh, Klaus Knott and Robert Holtzman. They join us later on in the program. Uh, very good morning to you. As we said in our headlines, the UK has changed its guidance on the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Under 30s will now be offered an alternative to the jab following a review of rare blood clots. But the UK's vaccine advisory board stressed that the benefits of the jab continue to outweigh the risks for the vast majority of people. Now, England's deputy chief medical officer is Jonathan Van Tam, and he sought to downplay any concerns. Changes in preference for vaccines are business as usual, and this is a course correction. But this is a kind of massive beast that we are um, driving along at enormous pace with enormous success, this vaccine programme. And, you know, if you sail a massive liner across the Atlantic, then it's not really reasonable that you um, aren't going to have to make at least one course correction during that voyage. And I frame this very much in those terms. The NHS has a message that we will get the right vaccine to you in the right time, according to the new JCVI advice. The European Medicines Agency also ruled that the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine is safe, but said it found a possible link between the jab and very rare cases of blood clotting. The EMA also maintained that the benefits of the vaccine outweigh the risks of side effects, and the agency did not place any age restrictions on recipients. 
Now, the EMA's executive director, Ema Cook, looked to reassure the public as researchers try to find out what's causing the clots. This case clearly demonstrates one of the challenges posed by large-scale vaccination campaigns. When millions of people receive these vaccines, very rare events can occur that were not identified during the clinical trials. The role of pharmacovigilance, the monitoring of these side effects, is to help us to rapidly detect and analyse these risks and their impact on the benefit-risk profile of the vaccine. This case also shows us that our pharmacovigilance system is working. These very rare and unusual events have been picked up, identified, analysed and have allowed us to come to science-based recommendations to allow the safe and effective use of this vaccine. Well, of course, Juliana has been uh, following the developments of these vaccines right from day one. So, Juliana, let's bring you into this conversation for some thoughts. Very interesting, I thought, Jonathan Van Tam used this analogy of a massive liner crossing the Atlantic and occasionally it will have to change course. But to me, it's almost seemed more like building the aeroplane as you're flying it. And the uh, uh, vaccine companies, as we know, have done a remarkable job of getting these vaccines to people at incredible speed. So as we look at this issue now of blood clotting, I guess all we can really do is fall back on the evidence and fall back on the statistics. And the statistics still, it seems, suggest that this vaccine is safe in spite of the relatively no low number of blood clotting cases. Uh, good morning, Jeff. Well, I, I think that's a great way, a great place to start that uh, the unifying message from both the EU and the UK health regulators is that the AstraZeneca vaccine remains a safe and effective vaccine for the vast majority of people. Now, when it comes to the EU side of things, the European Medicines Agency, they came out saying that there is a possible link between the Astra Oxford vaccine and these very rare cases of blood clots and low blood platelets. But because they were unable to confirm any specific risk factors, so things like age, or gender, uh, or any specific med medications people are on, they weren't able to uh, provide any recommendations on specific um, age restrictions. The UK, meanwhile, they have come out and decided to uh, suggest that those under 30 take an alternative vaccine where possible. This means that the UK is going to have to lean heavily right now on the Pfizer vaccine uh, and then the Moderna vaccine in a couple of weeks and then potentially the summer on the J&J &J vaccine and the Novavax vaccines if those become approved in the UK. But I thought, again, at listening to the UK medical regulator, it was really interesting to be reminded that this is all down to a benefit-risk analysis. And the UK health regulator did a great job of making clear that every country has a different set of uh, circumstances to contend with, things like the size of the COVID wave, the risk of the next wave occurring, vaccine supply, and the values of the people in each respective country. And putting it all together, the UK has gone ahead and decided to offer, a, 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 to suggest a different vaccine be taken up by the under 30s when possible. Now, they said that this should not affect the timeline for the vaccination rollout and the reopening of the UK economy. Take a listen to what the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson had to say. 
will follow very carefully what they have to say. I think everybody should listen uh, carefully to what they have to say. Uh, so will we. Uh, but we'll get on with rolling out the, the vaccine programme. And to answer your question uh, absolutely directly, I don't think that uh, anything I have seen leads me to suppose that we will have to change the roadmap or deviate from the roadmap in any way. I would add that um, looking at uh, some of the commentary coming out of uh, public health experts in the last 24 hours or so, that the UK no doubt took into consideration a vaccine hesitancy, which is uh, proving to be more of an issue with younger people. So uh, perhaps that factored into their decision making as well, that if the UK wants to try for herd immunity, it's essential to get buy-in from under 30s as well. And uh, this uh, perhaps a part of their decision to uh, change their recommendation or go for this course correction, as the deputy medical officer called it. Uh, And just to wrap up by putting this all into perspective in terms of the numbers of these blood clots, as of April 4th, there were 222 cases of these blood clots out of 34 million people vaccinated with AstraZeneca in the uh, European Economic Area and the UK. So 222 out of 34 million. So we're talking about very rare events here. Guys? Indeed we are. Juliana, there's some amazing news. And again, like you, we're all voraciously reading it. But there is a UCL report, I don't know if you've seen, but their modelling says that Britain will already achieve herd immunity with 73.4% of the population being protected by April the 12th, by Monday as well. So that's very interesting. Those people who have had the jab, plus people who have obviously got the natural antibodies from having had it. But I think that's fascinating, and I'll part that for one moment, because I think what the British are doing is still in stunningly divergent from what the Europeans are doing. If I may show this chart, and I don't know if you've got your monitor on, because I know you're at that, that funny position, camera 11, but we've got a chart which I want to show our viewers, which shows the difference of countries that are A, stopping the vaccine. Well, so Denmark, Latvia, Netherlands and Norway are at the moment not using AstraZeneca, but those which are restricted by age as well. I don't know if we've got this one. Yes, thank, fantastic, Katie. Thank you. Uh, so these are the uh, countries that have restrictions already. And what our viewers will notice that whilst the Brits are restricting it uh, to 30s and over, in Europe, they're restricting it, for instance, in France, over 55s only, Germany over 60s, Sweden over 65 and Spain 60 to 65 only. So huge divergence between what the British uh, are saying and Jonathan Van Tam uh, yesterday uh, and what the Europeans are saying as well. Now, my question to you is, does that mean the availability of the AstraZeneca vaccine is going to actually be a lot more plentiful given those huge restrictions in place? Well, Steve, it's a a really interesting question. And this was put to the UK regulator yesterday, why they were choosing 30 as the threshold and not something higher like 50, 55 or 60, like we've seen from some of these other European countries. And this is where the UK regulator pushed back, saying that there are a number of factors to consider here. And vaccine supply is one of them and that it really comes down to risk, risk benefit here. And the UK offered a series of really great graphics demonstrating the risk from COVID ending up in an ICU versus the risks associated with these vaccines. And a lot comes down to your risk of exposure. And right now, because the UK virus situation is relatively under control, certainly compared to parts of Europe, which are still seeing spikes, and therefore people have a high risk of exposure to COVID, they feel comfortable putting the threshold at 30 years old. Now, when it comes to supply of AstraZeneca, uh, as I mentioned, this really puts a lot of pressure on um, the other vaccines that the UK has access 
access to. We are talking about Pfizer right now, Moderna kicking off yesterday, but we're going to get that in a more meaningful way in a couple of weeks' time. And then eventually Johnson & Johnson possibly this summer, which has yet to be approved. This does mean that there's going to be uh, a lot more AstraZeneca vaccine available, and the UK is counting on those older uh, people, 30 and up, to continue taking up the AstraZeneca vaccine when offered to them, because there is going to be now a, a very particular allocation of these vaccines. And just would add that that's going to put a lot more pressure on the NHS, because to date, it has been a case of you show up and whatever vaccine you're given is the one that you take here in the UK. Juliana, let me ask you a little bit about vaccine hesitancy at this point, because we heard various reports about the, the impact of blood clotting, whether it's a, across ages and gender. Mixed reports are suggesting it might impact women more and potentially younger categories. How is this going to impact the, the next phase? Because we're talking about some people who've had the first AstraZeneca vaccine, maybe they're reluctant to go back in for the second jab. Uh, and then as we move into younger categories that are still going to be offered the AstraZeneca vaccine, will there be hesitancy about taking up the, this particular vaccine now? I think without a doubt, there is going to be more hesitancy. And when you look at the guidance coming from the different countries, it's confusing. Here in the UK, we've got the medical regulator yesterday saying anybody who's had the first AstraZeneca jab should come forward for their second, regardless of age, with the exception of certain uh, certain categories of people. But by and large, if you've had the first Astra jab, come back for your second. In Germany, it's a different story. They're saying that if you've come and had your first jab and you are under 60, uh, you should receive a different product for your second dose. So how could that not introduce an element of caution into people's minds? I think regulators are doing as much as they can to dispel these concerns and the UK regulator making clear that their decision to uh, suggest a preference for different vaccines for the under 30s is not because of specific safety concerns, but it's out of caution. And again, they just continue to point us to these maps, these graphics that show the risk benefit and your risk of getting COVID versus your risk from these vaccines. And that risk profile does change as you get younger. And I think that they're going to lean into that type of analysis and try to get that message out there to crack down on vaccine hesitancy. And again, with the under 30s showing more vaccine hesitancy to the older groups, especially here in the UK, perhaps that factored into why they are going to offer the under 30s an alternative in hopes they do take it up because every, every vaccine, every jab matters here. Juliana, thanks so much for that. We'll see you a little later on in the programme. Uh, one of the other issues, of course, is just uh, production here. And one of the uh, co-founders of CureVac has suggested that US restrictions are making supply chain access difficult for some of these uh, manufacturers of vaccines. We are going to speak with CureVac CEO Franz Werner Haas as part of our new series uh, on Germany, the engine of Europe. That conversation starting at 8.30 Central European time. Right. Also coming up on the show, uh, the Fed looks to hammer home its new focus on outcomes versus outlooks. We'll have plenty more on that with Sarah Hewitt, who I know is patiently waiting in the wings for us. And for more on the fallout from the UK and European regulators' advice on AstraZeneca, you can check out the Squawk Box podcast.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. A slightly rudderless day again on uh, the U.S. markets. Investors waiting it out for earnings season. Still digesting some elements from the Fed minutes yesterday and the latest central bank meeting uh, effectively telling markets that they remain supported along with the economy. That was a catalyst for a little bit of repricing again around the interest rate story. But uh, what you've got investors just very much keeping these markets uh, trapped close to the flatline. A little bit of green on the Dow. Another record finish for the S&P 500 uh, despite very minimal moves there. It was the 18th record we've seen so far this year. So uh, fairly decent levels as you take a look at that 4,079, just a slight pullback for the Nasdaq. That said, it was fascinating seeing some of the big moving stocks for the market. Apple having the most positive impact for the S&P and Tesla having the most negative impact for the Nasdaq. The Apple stock story was fascinating for me. A number of bulls were out talking yesterday. One was Morgan Stanley that still thinks the stock is a buy but lowered her price target in particular around this particular stock. This is Huberty, a closely followed analyst around Apple stock. And the argument was about valuations just becoming too stretched. So it was more of a realistic assessment, even though the, the picture still looks strong for the services side, it was very much down to that valuation story. And I think that's quite telling as we take a look at the broader sector and what investors are going to do with technology. If valuations are pulling back, even though the prospects, growth prospects still look strong, it does tell you about a natural headwind for some of these big technology names. A quick look at the Asian markets, uh, and this is how the session is playing out on the back of that choppy session on Wall Street. A little bit of green again for the Australian market. It's been one of the better performers this week, nine tenths higher. It's been choppy across on those Asian markets this week, with uh, Chinese stocks now regaining two tenths after some uh, faint losses yesterday, eight tenths on Hong Kong, and uh, Japanese stocks have been oscillating as well. This session uh, traveling a little bit weaker off about a quarter of a percent. Opening calls in Europe, we had a fairly decent day again for the FTSE in the UK yesterday. Uh, strong gains of about nine-tenths of a percent, third positive session in a row. You can see in lockstep we're chasing uh, some stronger numbers before the open. 148 on the Italian market, for instance. Uh, that market was a little bit weaker yesterday, breaking an eight-day winning streak, but looks to recover some of the green today. Uh, U.S. futures, this is the early indication. You can see also indicated higher. That's providing a, a nice backdrop for the European session this morning. You've got 64 points early on on the Dow. Jeff. Thanks very much, Karen. The Federal Reserve intends to maintain easy monetary policy until tangible outcomes are achieved. This, according to minutes from the FOMC's March meeting, the switch from adjusting policy based purely on forecasts come as the Fed looks to reinforce its message to the market amid rising Treasury yields. Officials also noted inflation risks are broadly balanced at this point. Well, speaking to CNBC, Fed Governor Lael Brainard reiterated the central bank's policy adjustment. The outlook uh, has brightened considerably. Of course, our monetary policy forward guidance is premised on outcomes, uh, not the outlook. 
Um, and so it is uh, going to be some time before both uh, employment and inflation uh, have uh, achieved uh, the kinds of outcomes that uh, are in that forward guidance. Well, we're pleased to welcome to the program Sarah Hewin, Head of Research for Europe and America's at Standard Chartered Bank. Uh, Sarah, back in the old days, before lower for longer, we used to talk about the need for central banks to be ahead of the curve. And we all got stressed if they fell behind the curve. And the idea was that they used their superior intelligence on the economy to anticipate the moves required to keep the economy singing along at a fine growth rate without generating inflation. Have we just thrown out all of that history of central bank wisdom by now saying that we have to see outcome-based goals before we adjust monetary policy? I think it's more a case of um, comfort that the outcomes are not going to take us by surprise. Um, So that's essentially what the Fed is saying. Um, Clearly, nobody knows for sure how things are going to turn out. But at the moment, the Fed's view is that the outlook is good, but that there are still risks. And so I think they're very reluctant. They feel as if they have plenty of leeway um, to allow inflation to rise to 2% and above 2%. And um, they have plenty of leeway to wait for unemployment to fall significantly further. Uh, the current situation, of course, is one where they're far far from their aims and they are really signaling that they don't expect to get to um, their targets anytime soon. It's different from the situation where inflation is skirting 2% from, uh, and the economy is, is at full employment. So I think they can afford to wait to see how things develop and to see how quickly unemployment falls. To me, that's the big unknown. In Spinal Tap terms, they seem to have turned the dovishness up to 11 here. But it is worth pointing out that this meeting was held before the much stronger employment and ISM numbers that we've recently seen. Do you think perhaps the tone of this meeting is slightly out of kilter with actually the better economic uh, evidence that we're getting from the economy? I mean, they they did point even at at the meeting, they were talking about an improving outlook. Um, They were anticipating that consumer spending would be boosted by fiscal stimulus and um, as, as well as low interest rates. And if you look at the Fed's forecasts for the unemployment rate, they've got um, unemployment falling quite substantially over the course of this year. So they, I think, to a large extent, are factoring in some very hefty payroll numbers over the coming months. Um, Now, the, the uncertainty, of course, is how far the current uh, strength in the economy persists. We know that there's pent-up savings that can be deployed, but there was an interesting study yesterday um, which showed that a lot of the 
recent um, paycheck, uh, you know, uh, checks from the um, fiscal stimulus are being saved and being used to pay down debt rather than being spent. So it, it seems sensible to take a cautious approach at this stage. The economy is um, as there's still a huge output gap. And um, from the Fed's point of view, that output gap needs to be closed in order for inflation to get back to target and, and indeed to come up, stay above target for a while. Sarah, I want to talk a little bit further about uh, the Fed's idea of seeing and touching inflation now, not just imagining it like they used to in the past, trying to predict what would happen. Uh, we also used to talk about the, the Big Mac indicator, but perhaps the Taco Bell indicator is better this time round. Embarked upon a big hiring drive this week, about 5,000 employees and wanted to hire in one day. And they were talking about the labour market being tight, which I thought was just an extraordinary comment, given what we've just been through in this crisis and how many more jobs need to be brought back. But they're willing to, to pay up to bring uh, back the, the right uh, sort of uh, skills into the workforce. We're hearing more than that, too. The jobs report was flagging up some urgency, too, or openings at a, a levels that we've not seen since January 2019. Could the Fed approach be wrong, given just what's now being baked into the employment market as jobs are being brought back into the economy? Um, I mean, I think, it, 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 you know, time will tell. And the uh, point is that they're prepared to tolerate inflation above target for for some time before they feel the need to withdraw policy accommodation. Now, um, I think wages are going to be key here. The problem is that we'll get some very, very choppy data from um, wages um, in the in the coming months. So we really need to see things settle down and have an idea about what is happening to wage growth, um, uh, underlying wage growth. The headline inflation rate we know is going to be moving up quite substantially in the coming months. Part, largely due to base effects, but also as the economy opens up and also because of the rise in energy prices. So the focus is very much on what's happening to wages in terms of asking the question about whether higher inflation is becoming embedded into the economy. Again, the Fed's forecast show inflation above 2% this year, next year, the year after, but not on a rising trend. So they're taking the view that wages will pick up, but um, that uh, you're not going to see labour costs accelerating to an extent that inflation starts to move out of control. Uh, Sarah, of course, your, your title is Europe and the Americas, and I can't help thinking there is a, a bigger divide happening and being created all the time between the very stagnant pace of growth and, and indeed vaccinations in Europe compared to the stellar pace perhaps on both fronts we're seeing in the US as well. What are the ramifications of that for European assets uh, and indeed the European outlook? I mean, the European picture at the moment is very grim. It's a uh, we double-dip recession, fourth quarter of last year, first quarter of this year. And the, um, you know, the, the, the picture is, is, is not good at the moment. Economies are in lockdown, but the outlook is better. So I think for the second half of the year, we are going to be seeing a rebound. Vaccinations, which have been very slow so far, are likely to pick up substantially in the current quarter. And as the weather improves as well, I think a lot of the uh, pandemic restrictions will be removed by the end of the summer the majority of people will be vaccinated. So we're looking ahead to a much better story, even though the first half of this year looks very weak. Um, from the ECB's point of view, 
I don't think they're in any hurry to withdraw policy accommodation, despite um, what some of the comments yesterday. Um, it makes sense to keep on with QE and to hold rates very low for a very long time. Certainly, we don't see any risk of inflation getting out of control in the euro area. Indeed. Uh, Sarah, thank you very much indeed. And I know there was a slight mix-up over timing this morning, so apologies for that. But thank you very much indeed for hanging around to speak to us today. Sarah Hewin, Head of Research, Europe and America's at Standard Chartered Bank. As well, yeah, the Americans. Did you see these mega centres? They're one centre. Well, I think they've got a few of these. 95,000 jabs in one day at, at the, some of these mega centres. One location. Unbelievable, isn't it? It is unbelievable. And, and I think we have to say, OK, I know we've got to move on, but great work done by the Biden administration, but a lot of this happened under the Trump administration as well. So let's be totally apolitical about this. The private sector with CVS Pharmacy and others really picking up, but Trump ordered a hell of a lot uh, of, of vaccines while he was still in administration. Yeah, ordering the doses is one thing, uh, and full merit to, to President Trump for that initiative. But of course, President Biden, in terms of getting it out, the accelerated yeah. program is faster than what we're seeing elsewhere across the world. And you, know, you point out pharmacies. I mean, we've not really seen a lot of that, right, in many countries where you go to the local pharmacy sure. and you get that vaccine also local centres. I mean, a lot of various parts of the population don't go to uh, some health clinics, so they go to some of the more domestic or local parts well, where, they, where they get a vaccine, and I that's hear. been something the administration well, has from tackled. A personal experience, can I just say a shout-out to the British GPs out there? I'm sure one or two of them watched this morning. Absolutely fantastic performance uh, on the vaccine rollout in the United Kingdom. Fantastic work, especially the one in Crowborough. Got your back. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.